to Literary Anything, our Marian Libraries podcast where we talk about anything literary and literary anything. I'm Jane. I'm Paula. Welcome back. Welcome to the podcast where Jane and I talk about <laughs> children dying. <laughs> Month two of our... <laughs> Month two of to children grief. <laughs> Honestly, I finished this book and I said to Stephen, I'm so emotionally drained mm. from the two, the last two books. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So we'll talk about what's next yes. at the end of this. We're gonna, but we're going to get away from this. Could not be further <laughs> away from yes. the last two books. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about that. Yeah. So this month we read Hamnet yes. by Maggie O'Farrell. We did. And Jane's going to read the blurb. I'll read the blurb, which we went through last month, but I'll read it again for a reminder. On a summer's day in 1596, a young girl in Stratford-upon-Avon takes her takes to her bed with a fever. Her twin brother, Hamnet, searches everywhere for help. Why is nobody home? Their mother, Agnes, is over a mile away in the garden where she grows medicinal herbs. Their father is working in London. Neither parent knows that one of their children will not survive the week. Hamnet is a, div- is a novel inspired by the son of a famous playwright. It is a story of the bond between twins and of a marriage pushed to the brink by grief. It is also the story of a kestrel and its mistress, a flea that boards a ship in Alexandria, and a glovemaker's son who flouts convention in pursuit of the woman he loves. Above all, it is the tender reimagining of a boy whose life has been all but forgotten, but whose name was given to one of the most celebrated plays ever written. Yes. That's Hamnet. That's Hamnet. And I'll admit... I feel like I need to admit right off the top that I mm-hmm. have read very little Shakespeare and I know very little about him. Yes. I read um, Macbeth and Midsummer Night's Dream, so not even Hamlet. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you are in um, terms of... I've watched quite a few Shakespeare movies. Right. Um, and I actually watched one again while I was reading this, but I've not read, like, since high school. I think we read Romeo and Juliet in high school... And, but I've never even seen or read Hamlet. Right. So, you, but you. I don't know the. So you didn't watch Hamlet while you no. were reading this. Oh, it was something <laughs> no, else. I watched, you watched Romeo and Juliet. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> because I love that, like the Baz Luhrmann version of it. Right. Which was made in the nineties. Have you seen that? No. Oh, Paula. <laughs> it is just. It is one of my top ten movies. I just adore it. It's so visually amazing. Anyway. We're not talking about that, but yep. no, I didn't watch Hamlet. Because okay. <laughs> I, I was Romeo going to watch it. There's actually a version <laughs> of it on Canopy. So if you do want to watch Hamlet, never seen mm-hmm. it, you can watch it on Canopy. But it was two and a half hours long and I just didn't have the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know, really, I've never really thought about Shakespeare as a person ever. Yes. Until now. Same. So I know nothing new and know nothing about him. Right. So uh, Maggie. <laughs> so we're just pressing so with our lack of overall knowledge. Clear, clean slates. <laughs> clean slates with this book. So Maggie O'Farrell is, uh, was born in Northern Ireland in 1972. She grew up in Wales and Scotland and she lives now in Edinburgh. She's worked as a waitress, a chambermaid, a bike messenger, a teacher, arts administrator. She was a journalist in Hong Kong and London and she was also the deputy literary edi- editor of The Independent on Sunday. She's uh, married to fellow novelist William Sutcliffe, who I don't know. Do you no. know William? No, neither do I. Who she met while she was uh, studying at Cambridge, and they live with their three children. So she's the author of a number of books. She's a celebrated author. I've not read anything other than this of her 
work. Have you read any other books? I started to read her autobiography, I Am, I Am, I Am. That sounded quite good, mm. I thought. Mm. Um, so she's written books such as After You've, After You'd Gone, My Lover's Lover, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, The Hand That First, first Held Mine, and I Am, I Am, I Am, mm. and Hamnet, which was released last year, and that was the winner of the Women's Prize in Fiction. And just a quick note on the Women's Prize in Fiction, that was established... Uh, in the 90s as a way to recognise the literary, literary achievements of female writers uh, and that was brought about because the Booker Prize in 1991 had zero shortlisted books written by women that year despite the fact that a, around 60% of the novels published that year were written by females. Mm. So that was uh, the catalyst, I guess, for this literary prize. So lots of authors, agents, publishers booksellers, librarians, journalists came together to uh, create this this prize and the winner gets £30,000, 30, which is about, mm. what, $80,000-ish. Mm. That's the prize that they win. Right, so, so a significant amount yeah, of money. Yeah, it's a significant yeah. amount of money. Mm. So that's what she won last year. For this book. For this book, for yeah. Hamnet, yeah. sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's right. A lot of people, as we mentioned last month, um, had this as one of their top books of 2020. Yes. So that was our reasoning for choosing this one for yes. this month. And Maggie also spoke at uh, Writers Week over the weekend, which both Paula and I watched, so we'll probably uh, talk about that throughout the, the podcast as well. That's right. Maggie starts her book off with a historical note, and I thought it was worth reading. It's very brief. Historical note. In the 1580s, a couple living in Henley Street, Stratford, had three children, Susanna, then Hamnet, and Judith, who were twins. The boy, Hamnet, died in 1596, age 11. Four years or so later, the father wrote a play called Hamlet. Lovely. So as um, Jane mentioned in the blurb, this starts off with Hamnet searching for his family. Judith is ill, his twin sister, and he needs help, but he can't find any of them. And through his searching, he goes through all the people that he lives with. So he lives with his grandmother, the maid, his uncles, his aunt, the apprentice, his grandmother, his mother, his older sister, and his father, he mentions, is away in London. And he seeks out the doctor, but the doctor's away, and the woman at the doctor's house when Hamnet tells her that his sister is ill, asks if Judith has buboes mm-hmm. um, and explains that that means lumps under the skin. And he's not sure, but he thinks he's heard this word before and he thinks he knows what it means. So mm-hmm. there's he's getting so obviously maybe, yeah. Yeah, more and more scared. And of course, we know what it means. Yeah. We know it means the plague. And the novel proceeds to switch back and forth between this time when Judith is ill and back in time when Agnes's mother, the twin's grandmother, is a young woman who seems to appear out of the forest. And this part of the story felt very sort of fantastical and almost like a once upon a time yeah. fairy tale kind of quality to it. Yeah, it did. Yeah. So this woman who's sort of born of the forest enchants Agnes's wealthy father and they marry and they have two children who are Agnes and her brother Bartholomew. But then she has a third child, and both the child and mother die. Um, The mother dies in childbirth. And so the woman who their father subsequently marries, Joan, does not like her new stepchildren, who she finds strange. And Agnes and her mother are written almost like mystical creatures, 
um, who are very connected to nature. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say supernatural, almost on the mm. edge of supernatural. What do you yeah. think, Jane? Uh, yeah, this is there's a certainly a psychic element that that runs through these two characters. Yeah, absolutely. probably psychic is the better yeah. word for it. Agnes has certain abilities, like she can hold a person's hand. She holds them in the spot between their finger and thumb, and when she does that, she can see into their future, she can see their minds, she can see things that have happened their to ailments, them. What's what's ailing them, things like that. That's right. Mm. And Joan very much disapproves of her doing this. It really mm. basically freaks everyone out. Yeah, as as, as you'd expect would. at the time in the you know, in the sixteenth century, anything that's outside the norm is is strange and witchcraft and blasphemous and all of those things. Having said that, if you held my hand and said to me, this is going to happen to you, and then it happened, I'd be pretty freaked out yeah. too. <laughs> you wouldn't burn me at the stake. No, though. I would not. <laughs> I would think you were very cool. <laughs> <laughs> we are also introduced to the young Latin tutor, who is tutoring Agnes's younger half-brothers, because by this point, Joan has children of her own with Agnes's father. And this tutor is forced to do this, because his father, the Glover, is in debt to Agnes's father. So he's not very happy about it, and he finds it boring. And But then one day he spies a young woman uh, on the property with what looks like an eagle that seems to be trained. And suddenly he's happier about hanging out mm, yeah. <laughs> at that property. <laughs> and he's heard about the sister of the boys he is teaching, and everyone talks about her like... She's some crazy witch, pretty much. And, of course, he realizes that this crazy person that everyone's talking about is actually this enchanting woman with the what turns out to be a kestrel, not an eagle. And the two of them fall in love, and they're both very keen to get away from their situations. Agnes, because um, she is very unhappy with her stepmother. And by this point, her father has died. So she's it's just her and Bartholomew the stepmother and her half-siblings. And then the tutor, his father is very abusive and he's very dissimilar from his father, so he's keen to get away from his situation too. But they don't think anyone will agree to their marriage because of Agnes's reputation as a crazy woman and because the tutor was younger, penniless, and had no prospects. Mm, and no trade. They, they often That's right, no trade. Tradeless as well. Tradeless, yeah, mm. penniless and tradeless. And she was, Agnes's was had quite a significant dowry that was left to her by her father. So That's she right. was, while she was sort of a slight outcast in the, in the town, she was still a decent prospect for marriage because she had such a significant dowry and a fairly wealthy family as well. Right, mm. but people didn't like her, didn't understand no, her. that's right. Yeah. So Agnes devises a plan that she will become pregnant and then they will not be able to oppose the marriage. And so that is what happens. And there's kind of a dramatic way that Joan realizes mm. that Agnes is pregnant because the menstrual cloths, cloths yeah. are some of them are missing. And so she mm. deduces that it's Agnes and... They kind of have this showdown. Yeah. But as you say, with her significant dowry, when they present this um, situation or when the situation is presented to the tutor's father, the Glover, he sees his opportunity to get out of debt in mm. this situation. So suddenly he's all on board. And 
the marriage happens. And at the end of each chapter, at the end of each point where they were switching back and forth between the two time periods, tell me if you felt like this. Every time one ended, I felt like, no, I want to go back to that. <laughs> I don't want to. And then the, the, yeah. the next time period would start and I would feel the same. Yeah. Because sometimes, I don't know if you find this in these kinds of novels where they go back and forth between mm-hmm. different time periods. There's a time period you prefer, and when it goes away from that time period, you're just like, oh, this again. Yeah. But, yeah. but this time, but both time periods I was mm. very engaged with. Well, and often it's, it's the difference between the time periods is, is, you know, now, present time, and then back in time. Right. So often I do often feel like I want to be in one or the other, but this one, because the time periods are... S- both in the 16th century. Mm. Yeah, I was quite happy to be in both. Mm-hmm. So now Agnes ends up moving in to, they kind of build a little addition on to the home that mm. that the uh, tutor was living in. Yeah. and But she's basically living with her in-laws. And that's not a happy circumstance for, it's difficult for everyone. But I appreciate the relationship that ends up developing between Mary, Mary, that's the tutor's mother, and Agnes. That's evident when they are tending to Judith, who is ill at this point. Yeah, Yeah, because imagine living with your mother-in-law. I mean, I adore my mother-in-law, but I don't. I mean, I don't want to live with anyone. That's other right. Other than who I live with. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had a very good relationship with my mother-in-law too when I was married. But yeah, exactly. It's hard to live with people. Yeah, of course. Even your family. So never mind in-laws yeah. and things like that. And so this going back and forth, then on page one sixty-six, kind of breaks off with this sentence. For the pestilence to reach Warwickshire, England, in the summer of 1596, two events need to occur in the lives of two separate people, and then these people need to meet. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of a separate story that the author takes us on to tell the story of how the pestilence, how the plague came to lead to Judith becoming ill. Yeah. And I found it really fascinating. What do you that. think? I yeah. loved that. I loved that little break in the story, this little origin story of the plague. Of the plague. Yeah. It takes you all around the world on various ships and seeing various peripheral characters, their interactions with animals and other yeah. people that led to the plague affecting Hamnet's twin. And it's such a short little chapter, but immediately I felt engaged with that little story of the flea. Of the flea, that's right. <laughs> the flea and how it jumps onto a monkey. And yeah, it was, yeah, I enjoyed that. I appreciated that. Yeah, and I also thought it was very interesting in light of our situation now with the yes. pandemic. It made me it made me think of movies like Outbreak where they show yeah. the events that lead up to this fictional pandemic and then it made me think, I want to see the movie of exactly how COVID started. Yeah. You One know? day we probably will we, see I'm, that uh, That's movie. what I thought too. I'm sure there will be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's in the making now. But then we come back to Judith, and Judith is ill, and Hamnet thinks about the times when they've tricked people by wearing each other's clothes. And he decides, he sees that Judith is very much in a bad way, and he decides to try and trick death into taking him instead of Judith. So Agnes awakes after battling Judith's illness. And she's very confused because her twin children are lying next to each other. When The last thing she remembers was that Judith was very ill. And mm. then... Literally about to pass, like to die. That's right. Very, very sick. And 
then now she sees that her daughter, her daughter, her sick daughter is there and her son is peacefully sleeping next to her. But when she looks more closely, she realizes that Judith has recovered and it's actually Hamnet who's dying. Yes. And at that, that's the first moment she even realizes that Hamnet is sick. Mm. And then we get to part two, which starts out with this quote from Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. I am dead, thou livest. Draw thy breath in pain to tell my story. And so that was, that's how she begins the second part of this book. And the two, at this point, the two timelines merge, mm-hmm. and now Hamnet is dead. Yes. I'll just read one other point. This is Agnes trying to grapple with the fact that Hamnet is dead. She, like all mothers, constantly casts out her thoughts, like fishing lines, towards her children, reminding herself of where they are, what they are doing, how they fare. From habit, while she sits there near the fireplace, some part of her mind is tabulating them and their whereabouts. Judith upstairs, Susanna next door, and Hamnet? Her unconscious mind casts again and again, puzzled by the lack of bite, by the answer she keeps giving it. He is dead. He is gone. And Hamnet? The mind will ask again. At school? At play? Out at the river? And Hamnet? And Hamnet? Where is he? Here, she tries to tell herself, cold and lifeless on this board right in front of you. Look. Hear. See. And Hamnet? Where is he? So I just, Mm. yeah, found that that uh, very affecting and I could imagine that how the enormity of losing your child would just be so mind-boggling that you literally would not be able to understand it yeah incomprehensible as I said from this point it stays in the same timeline and it's all about how the rest of the family grieve and try and cope with Hamnet's death and the way that Hamnet's father does that is by going to London and sort of burying himself and his work and he achieves success writing and producing plays. It ends up buying a big fancy house for his family to have on their own and move to Stratford so that mm-hmm. they're closer to him. Because before this, he'd been staying away for, you know, months big and chunks months. of time. Yeah. yeah. Another reason why he stays away from Stratford once they move there is because he cannot bear to be. S- sucked down by Agnes's grief mm. of the loss of Hamnet he he just can't so he stays away and eventually word gets back to Agnes that her husband has written a play called Hamlet mm. and she is mortified mm. it's probably worth mentioning that Hamnet and Hamlet the names are interchangeable at the time yes um Maggie O'Farrell makes that point at the end of the book that spelling is more fluid and flexible That's right, in the 16th century. Yeah. So Hamlet and Hamnet are interchangeable. They're one and the same, essentially. And Agnes wonders, how can he write a play titled, essentially, Their Dead Child's Name? Mm. And so she decides to travel to London with her brother to investigate how this is and it's a a significant journey even though it's closer it's a significant journey for someone who is so tied to the forest and to Mm. nature and who's never really been anywhere anywhere exactly yeah Yeah. but certainly not London such a big city and when she finally sees the play she realizes that by what he's done is he's coached the Hamlet actor to invoke the look and mannerisms of their Hamnet. And by the 
playwright playing the ghost of Hamlet, mm. he is able to take on his son's death and to let him live. In, and in the book it says, he has, Agnes sees, done what any father would wish to do to exchange his child's suffering for his own, to take his place, to offer himself up in his child's stead so that the boy might live. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and that's virtually the end of the book. Pretty much, yeah. It yeah, ends. I loved that. It ends with a quote from Hamlet, which yeah. is, remember me. Yeah. 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 I loved it too. Yeah. 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 this was such an emotional book Mm. I found it hard to read because I felt so much for it Mm. while I was reading it Mm. I don't know about you and I don't know if it's because it was off the back of what we read last (laughs) month as well but I found it I don't think I've ever read a historical fiction piece that has caused me to feel so much for the character's you which know. is which is why you thought this book was going to be okay and not so sad. <laughs> Absolutely. I said it on last month's podcast. won't be sad because it's olden days. It was very sad. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was devastatingly sad. <laughs> I wasn't as devastatingly affected as I was by last month's book, I yeah. guess. I don't, I don't know why. That bit that I read um, about Agnes not being able to cope with the mm. knowledge of Hamnet's death is probably the most affecting Mm. part for me paul and i both listened to maggie at writers week which and she spoke about this book she talked about wanting to write this book because she wanted to give a a voice to this small boy who's been virtually forgotten in history she wanted people to know that this boy mattered and that he was loved and he was grieved when he when he died a third of children died before the age of 10 in elise in elizabethan england so you know you think about that in history and, and like we said last month you know everybody at the time had a child that passed away or died in childbirth like death was a present and ongoing part of people's lives during this period in time so it's easy to forget or it's easy to assume that these mothers and fathers and families don't grieve and miss their children. That's so true. So I, I loved that she brought that to life and she made me feel so connected as a mother to her children. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. I also liked how, like I said with the author's note, she makes this point that Hamnet dies and then four years later Shakespeare writes Hamlet mm. and why hasn't anyone ever put that together yeah. before yeah and I love how she puts it together here yeah yeah with with the end where you know he's playing the ghost of Hamlet and he has a boy playing yeah. Hamlet and w- why haven't we seen what that means yeah absolutely and also at writer's week she she was almost indignant about the historical approach to Agnes, or and we should say that Agnes is her birth name, we think, but she's referred to generally in history as Anne Hathaway. Yes. Which most people would have heard of um, her before. But she, Maggie says that she's been treated terribly by history, that she was unworthy of William Shakespeare and she was old and she was ugly and she tricked him into marrying him and he, he stayed in London because he just couldn't bear being around her. This story gives us a, a different interpretation of what the history might have been because they're so scant. There's very little historically 
about William Shakespeare, the person. Obviously, we know him as you know one of the world's most celebrated playwrights, but him personally, not not a lot's known about him. Yeah, he's or a Anne mystery. Hathaway, or his or his children. He mm. has no direct descendants anymore. They all died out with his grandchildren. Yeah. So I liked the idea that we're seeing a different side yeah. to Agnes or Anne. She also makes a point about twins and the, the evidence of twins in Shakespeare's various works. Mm. And as I said, I'm not that familiar with all of Shakespeare's work, but the one that she mentioned was Twelfth Night. Um, yeah. where they have a boy and a girl twins who have the same face. Yes. And she mentions about Hamnet and Judith having the same face yeah. quite frequently throughout this book. I mean, book. that's a link. How can you not connect those two things? Right. Yeah, I don't know Twelfth Night either. No. Again, a podcast <laughs> where Jane and Paula talk about books they've not read. All the books they don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I really liked the first part of this book, mm-hmm. the switching back and forth. Yeah. And then I loved the little bit, as I said, about how the plague came yes. to um, their family. But I found the second part quite dense. And yeah. I missed that sort of switching back and forth. Mm. And, you know, like Agnes was so consumed with grief mm. and her husband was just away all the time. And sometimes I would turn the page and there would just be like these big, dense paragraphs with no dialogue in them. And I felt it quite... Weighty. I found it quite difficult to wade through mm. at that point. Do you think that that was a deliberate move, though, to draw you down into that weighty sense of grief? Perhaps. Perhaps. Was it to sort of drag you into that slog of grief? It, yeah. Maybe? It, it could be. It could because be. Because it, it does feel like two sort of different texts almost, mm. doesn't it? Mm. Obviously, I love books that have got the plague in them. We know this. That's <laughs> quite, you know. I liked, um, I liked to understand how how people managed that at the time, and mm. there, you know, we can now draw some parallels to to what we're going through across the world now, you know. And I liked in this book how, you know, it wasn't, you know, in um, Year of Wonders, you know, the whole town gets wiped out. This is not like that in this book. It's something that is the plague or the pestilence, as they call it, is something that's present in their lives people know the signs to look out for they know how to manage it they know what to do you know you burn the bedding and Mm -hmm. clean the house out and and what have you um there's some parallels to be drawn to to COVID and what we're going through now you know we know the signs our lives have been changed because of COVID we we sort of navigate life around the threat of this this disease Mm. similar to how they did with the plague. Right, but there are a lot of things that they didn't know as well, which oh, I imagine yeah. would be which would <laughs> yeah. make it tying an old toad around your stomach. <laughs> oh, that's right. Is when not Judith, going to help. <laughs> when Judith was ill, the doctor came around with a toad yeah. for Agnes to tie around her <laughs> child's stomach because that was supposed to help. Draw out the whatever, the toxins. But or how much more frightening would it be in that time yes. with the pandemic? Whereas... We and especially we're lucky in this country. Well, right now, we've got zero community uh, transmitted cases, mm. so we feel fairly safe, virtually normal. But if yeah. we, you know, if not, if you were just venturing out and you know that every so often somebody 
develops these lumps under their mm. skin and then their fingers go black and yeah and, and that could happen to you at yeah. any moment and you don't know how yeah it would just be so frightening there'd be there's a level of superstition and and fear that you know what is the actual cause yeah and you can imagine why when hamnet initially goes to the doctor's house and that woman is there mm. she puts her hand to his chest and just pushes him out the door and says go home and stay there yeah they're isolating mm. yeah they know to isolate and yeah. th- that's kind of all they know. The other interesting thing was the fact that she never named Shakespeare. Yes. He's always father, husband, brother. Tutor. Son. son yeah. yeah. Never named once. And at her talk that uh, Jane mentioned we both listened to, I was w- anticipating her addressing that. And I was anticipating somebody asking her that question and... Um, nobody ever did so I'm just left like (laughs) I to theorize why I appreciated that I liked that because I think it was nice to take the we all knew who he was but the focus was off of William Shakespeare it was on the family that's the whole point isn't it I think you're right I think to put the name Shakespeare throughout it would draw attention to the man who's had all the attention yeah yeah absolutely I Mm. I did lots of googling of Stratford and the houses that they lived in and the farmhouse and all of those sorts of things that was interesting to add to my reading I guess I sort of did that every couple of chapters I'd have to I'd stop and you know I wonder what that looks like now and what house that is right so you could envision how they were and how their lives looked yeah that's right Mm. and they're beautifully preserved most of these houses Mm. You know, with the, um, I think, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's like an organised, like a Shakespeare organisation. So they've bought up all of these properties ah. um, and they own them and have preserved them as museums and places to visit and the medicinal gardens, all of those sorts of things are there to go and look at. See, I probably wouldn't have had an interest in that before, but now mm. that I've read this, that would be so fascinating yeah. to go and see. Yeah, really mm. interesting. I loved the magic and the herbal remedies and the superstition and the psychic abilities and all of that you know I love this sort of stuff I know this is the perfect (laughs) book for Jane it's got witchy stuff it's got plaguey stuff (laughs) it's got your name all over it it. does (laughs) and I I loved that I loved that element running through it and it wasn't wasn't a burn the witch at the stakes kind of kind of book it was just Agnes is a bit strange because she does this and she knows, I'm putting all air quotes in, (laughs) she knows things. I love the idea of that being a part of their lives. Mm. I know it's a bit tropey with these sorts of books, but I always like that sort of thing. I didn't find it tropey though. It's written in a way that's not. I read read a funny, a very long review on Goodreads. You might have seen it. It was very, very long. And I couldn't have, it actually made me angry because (laughs) I couldn't have disagreed more wholeheartedly with the sentiment of this reviewer they said that it was yeah the witchiness was a trope okay didn't feel anything for the characters oh. they were flat characters throughout the book and I couldn't disagree more mm. I felt something for all of these people in particular Hamnet I loved getting this little I don't know Blind to this little boy's head as he's mm. trying to find his family yeah. and, and his relationship with his twin sister mm. Yeah, it was heartbreaking that, that the chapter where he, he sort of changes places with Judith, it's a heartbreaking chapter. Mm. It's just, 
his connection to his sister was so apparent and beautiful and it was, yeah, I had a big cry then as well. <laughs> I cried lots in this book. <laughs> yeah. My husband said, like, you've got to stop <laughs> reading these books. <laughs> Stuart's going to be happy with next month. <laughs> So I haven't been able to start another book. Usually I'll, I'll give it a couple of hours and then I'll start my next book. But I finished this, a, you know, several days ago and I haven't been able to start another book oh. yet. I feel traitorous to start another book yet. I feel wow. like I need to give this a bit of time. Bit of breathing space. Yeah. You need to sit with it for a bit. Yeah. Wow. I just, I just adored it. I loved it so much. Even though I cried and it was sad, I just thought it was beautiful. Oh, that's so good. I yeah, like I say, I, I loved the first half. I struggled in the second half, but mm-hmm. I really loved the ending. And I wish I knew Hamlet the play better because yeah. I feel like that ending would have even hammered it home even more. Yeah, if I were familiar with it, which is why I wanted to watch it, and I still will. Yeah, because I think that she's really wrapped it up beautifully at at the end there with yeah. knowledge of the Hamlet play. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Okay, so that's Hamnet. And have you read other things? I have. I've read heaps of other things, but I won't go crazy into it all because we've talked for ages about Hamnet already. Um, One is is a book that you read last year, Nothing Can Hurt You by Nicola May Goldberg. Oh, yes. So I read that also. I found it intriguing. I guess I've talked about it before in the book as an upcoming release. Paul has talked about it as well, but it's just as a reminder, it's, it's... a book that's told in the voice of a number of different family, friends, community members after the murder of a local girl by her boyfriend. So each chapter is a different perspective, some told years after, some told right after, about the impact on them personally of, of this murder. So I found it intriguing. It was captivating. It was very suburban, um, which I quite liked. It was short. It was quick. It didn't set my world on fire. Mm. Um, I liked the concept more than I liked the actual book, perhaps. Yeah, I agree. I remember that was the one where I said it mm. suffered from being labelled as a thriller because it's not a thriller. No. It's just a good piece of fiction. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. And I couldn't quite remember what you said, but I imagined that you would have thought the same. Mm. I also read And Now We Have Everything on Motherhood Before I Was Ready by um, Megan O'Connell. This is about a woman who becomes pregnant is a non-fiction piece a woman who becomes pregnant in her I think it ends up being in her early 30s so it's not like she's 15 or anything mm. uh, before she's probably emotionally ready mm. i hated this book to, oh. i hated this book to start with i enjoyed the the broader bigger picture by the end of it i could sort of piece together what she's saying overall but it just i found it a bit annoying and immature mm. really slow going so, I don't know, I had hoped to you know, empathise with it or something. Not that I was a mother before I was ready, but mm-hmm. it was just, you know, an in- I thought it was an interesting premise, but it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> Harsh. Yeah. <laughs> and I also read Atomic Habits by Jane Clear. Oh, I want to know what you think yeah, of this. Yeah, which so many people have read. It's on lots of those, you know, change your world mm. book lists. I gained lots of interesting tips from this book I can see why it's so popular it was really easy to read not too theoretical but a nice holistic message uh, with some very practical applications so it goes into detail about how habits are formed how to build new habits and why we so often fail Mm. with our 
you know, oh, I'm going to exercise every day or I'm going to really knuckle down and write this report or anything like that. It sort of delves into why people might fail with those sorts of habits or goals. I listen to that as an audio book and it's one that I might go back to again to revisit a little bit. Yeah, I've tried twice now and I just keep running out of time with Mm. them. I tried with the audio book and with the actual book and yeah, it's not a it's not a judgment on the book. It's just yeah. that I keep running out of time with yeah. it. But, but yeah, I like the concept. I like the uh, the concept of like don't make it as big as Ben Hur. Just yeah. do small little things Tiny and things. keep doing them. Yeah. I read the girl with the louding voice by Ooh. Abby Dare. This is a story of a dunny who is a teenager growing up in a rural Nigerian village, and she desperately wants to go to school. But her mother dies and her father marries her off to a much older man who has two other wives already. And this novel is unique because it's written from her perspective in her broken English. So it makes it very endearing. Some people found that, I I read a few reviews, people found that a bit difficult. But I found it, it made her a very endearing heroine. And her fierce determination and bravery really makes you uh, want her to succeed. The only other Nigerian fiction I've ever read was My Sister the Serial Killer, which I didn't love, but this is so much different than that. And they begin many of the chapters with a fact about Nigeria, so it's also uh, educational and you learn stuff about that country. I loved the first half. The second half kind of lost a bit of its sparkle, but all in all, it was a good read. And I just also wanted to say that there's always a special place in my heart for characters who are lifted out of their circumstances by books, which <laughs> happens in this one. Kind of gave it that crawdads kind of feel. So yeah. I loved that about it. Books can change lives. That's right. <laughs> and the other one, I haven't quite finished it yet, but I'm going to talk about it anyway because I'm most of the way through. And I know that you were uh, also reading it, Jane, is Phosphorescence by oh, Julia Baird. Yeah. I haven't finished it yet either. Yeah, yeah. it's a nonfiction. Um, it's the subtitle is On Awe, Wonder, and Things that, sus- that Sustain You When the World Goes Dark. And I feel like that's a very accurate description. And I feel like does what it says on the tin. I have a couple people in my life who regularly sort of darken my world, shall Mm -hmm. we say. People I can't, unfortunately, people I have to deal with regularly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is one of those books that is good to get to bring you back from being sucked down by people like that. Yeah. Kind of reminding you to just kind of put your head up and look around and appreciate all of the awe and wonder in the world. Yeah. I particularly, I'm only about halfway through it, but I particularly loved the chapter about swimming in the ocean. Oh, yes. I just thought that was so mesmerizing. And you're a swimmer, but you don't swim in the ocean. No. <laughs> <laughs> it did made me, it did make me think that would be nice if I was somebody that could swim in the ocean. <laughs> that would be enjoyable. It didn't make you think maybe I no. am a person who no. could swim in the ocean. <laughs> No. (laughs) But I put it up there with books like uh, we talked about Untamed or even um, An Oldie But a Goodie I find is A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle is another good one I feel kind of lifts you up. So, yeah. Nice one. And now we have listener feedback. Oh, yes. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've got two questions today. The first one is from Tracy. And Tracy asks, do you ever disagree on what books to choose? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> People are stunned. <laughs> stunned. <laughs> um, yes. 
we do, but not in a argy bargy kind of no, way. No, no, we often will we'll throw a whole heap of things at each other, have some discussion. It's not even robust discussion. Have some discussion. <laughs> Just fun discussion. Yeah. Like we've said, it's one of our favorite uh, times of the month is when yeah. we decide what book we're going to read. We love it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not um, so, so much as disagreeing yeah. as just yeah a negotiation yeah <laughs> no negotiation that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tracy. <laughs> the other question is from Sue, and it's a bit longer. Sue asks, "Hi, ladies. In 2021, would you consider reviewing classic novels? Perhaps writers that impacted you on your literary journey, or maybe you remember a special novel which encouraged and nurtured your love of reading." Yeah, and then she mentions some that have affected her, like To Kill a Mockingbird, Sons and Lovers, Catch-22, The Old Man and the Sea, Lord of the Flies, The Great Gatsby, My Fortunate Life. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And we'll definitely consider that, I yeah. think. Put our thinking caps on, throw those classics into the mix next time we talk about yeah. our next podcast book. Yeah. Good one. Thank you, Sue. Now, now shall I talk about what's coming out? Sure. Quickly? There's a few things this month. There's uh, Gretel Colleen. Do you know her? She was. She's kind of on TV. She does radio, I think. She was TV host of Big Brother a long time ago. Here, I'll show you her picture. You might recognise her. Paula hasn't got her glasses. She looks on, so kind she of familiar. <laughs> she looks kind of familiar. <laughs> so she's written a book called My Daughter's Wedding. That's by Shet. That comes out this month. It says it's perfect for fans of Nora Ephron and Grace and Frankie. Gretel Colleen pens a heart-aching comedy about three generations of mother-daughter love. So that might be of interest for people. This one I thought sounded really interesting. It's called The Performance by... Claire Thomas. She's the author of Fugitive Blue, which I haven't read, obviously, of course. We've never read anything. <laughs> <laughs> which was, she won awards for that book and I can't, uh, sh oh, she was longlisted for the Miles Franklin for that book. I'll just quickly read it to you. It's perfect for fans of Emily Bitto and Charlotte Wood. The false cold of the theatre makes it hard to imagine the heavy wind outside in the real world, the ash air pressing into the city from nearby hills where bushfires are taking hold. The house lights lower, the auditorium feels hopeful in the darkness. As bushfires rage outside the city, three, three women watch a performance of a Beckett play. Margot, Margot is a successful professor, preoccupied by her fraught relationship with her ailing husband. Ivy with a troubled past, is distracted by the snoring man beside her. Summer is a young theatre usher, anxious about the safety of her girlfriend in the fire zone. As the performance unfolds, so, do each, so does each woman's story. By the time the curtains fall, they will all have a new understanding of the world beyond the stage. Isabella Lunday's got another book out from Bloomsbury. Uh, this is a non-fiction piece, so that's out on the 2nd of March. This is... A book about her life. She's had a very interesting life. Coming of age in the 60s, she rode the first wave of feminism. She's seen what can be accomplished by that movement in the course of her lifetime. She's been married three times. She says here that she's learnt how to grow as a woman while having a partner and then also when um, to step away from that partner and the rewards of embracing one's sexuality as an older woman. So that, for fans of hers, might be an interesting book to read. Now, this one sounds intriguing. It's called The Husband Poisoner. Did I read mm. this out to you last week? No. You might, you I were, haven't been here. You were sick. Here, yeah. This is by uh, Tanya Bretherton. It's a true crime book. 
After World War II, Sydney experienced a crime wave that was chillingly calculated. Discontent mixed with despair, greed and callous disregard, women who had lost their wartime freedoms headed back to the kitchen with sinister intent and the household poison thallium, normally used to kill rats, was repurposed to kill husbands and other inconvenient family members. Yvonne Fletcher disposed of two husbands. Carolyn Grills cheerfully poisoned her stepmother, a family friend, her brother, her brother and his wife. Unlike arsenic or cyanide, thallium is colourless, odourless and tasteless. Victims were mis- misdiagnosed as insane maligners or ill due to other reasons. Once death was attributed to natural causes, all, it was all too easy for an aggrieved woman to kill again. This is the story of a series of murders that struck at the very heart of domestic life. It's the tale of women who looked for deadly solutions to what they saw as impossible situations. The Husband Poisoner documents the reasons behind the choices these women made and their terrible outcomes. Oh, you should see the glint, the evil glint in Jane's eye. Doesn't that sound interesting? That sounds. That is my kind of book. Yeah. So that was set after the Second World War. Is that yes? Mm. Suburban women who killed in post-war, post-World War Two Sydney. So very specific. Yeah. Um, so that's by Tanya Bretherton, the Husband Poisoner. I thought I would just mention a bit of literary news. It's something that you, Jane, uh, brought to my attention last month, which is that. Anna Sorkin, who was the the subject of our uh, <laughs> podcast episode when we read My Friend Anna, mm-hmm. has been released from jail. <laughs> and Jane's laughing because she's just fascinated by her Instagram account. Oh, the second she was out, she was all over Instagram. Have you seen? I saw some of them. They're very, they're very strange about wanting a boyfriend and all just very kind of flippant and yes, which very is her flippant. Although she said, and I quote, (laughs) I just want to say that I'm really ashamed and I'm really sorry for what I did. I completely understand that a lot of people suffered when I thought I was not doing anything wrong. Which sounds completely insincere, especially when coupled with all of her Instagram posts. It's all just food and wine and just, yeah, very flippant. Like she'll post a photo of her off to see my parole officer. (laughs) As you do. You know, in some glamorous outfit. Looking gorgeous with her mask on, of course, in New York, mm. you know, on the steps of the parole office. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, we're still waiting for Inventing Anna on Netflix. I know. It said it was going to be out last, last year. year. I'm sure that was affected by the pandemic. Um, it said last month Insider reported that Sorokin had used most of the $320,000 fee she was paid for the show mm-hmm. to pay restitution to banks and other fines, oh, which is surprising. Poor, those poor banks. I know. Thank goodness they they can they make their it, money back. They can make buy now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but you would think that you know, if someone handed Anna Sorokin a three hundred twenty thousand dollar check, that mm. you, I don't necessarily see her running off to pay her restitution. No, maybe so it's surprising. Maybe it happened automatically. Maybe. Before maybe. She, yeah. Yeah. She didn't get that her got grubby off, paws on and it. And then she got the leftovers <laughs> to pay for her hotels. So our next month's book dun, dun, is... is although okay. can I just say something before we <laughs> announce what next month's book is? Yeah. I admit to being a bit of a book snob in the past. Would mm-hmm. you consider yourself to be a book snob, Jane? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well I will out myself 
as saying I'm a book I can be a book snob but in the, I, the library has rehabilitated me um, yeah no I will I'll qualify that I am I know where you're going with this mm. I'm not in a the book snob in relation to what you, where you're going mm. but I am about other genres, genres. yeah like what oh, sci-fi no mm. that that super popular fiction type stuff right you know the Wilbur Smith and the I can't even remember any others now Lee Child. Lee Childs, all that stuff. James that, Patterson. Yes, yes. Yep. And have we no have interest. considered, we have considered, well, I've I didn't put it to Jane. <laughs> anyway, we might go there one day. My, my, my <laughs> con- I might convince her. But point being is that in the library, we are encouraged to read outside of mm-hmm. our normal genres. And also, this is the point I want to make, is that we, or certainly I, don't ever want to discourage anyone from reading what they like. No. What they find enjoyable. Not. Of course not. Just read. Yes. Like it, read it. Yes. And I was inspired by an article. It's actually a Cosmo article. So there you go. I should not be <laughs> judging anybody. Um, called, I can't believe people are still questioning if romance mm. novels are real books. Yeah. Quote, unquote. And she says, if I hear someone say guilty pleasure one more time. Mm. So in light of all that, would you like to announce what our book is for next month? Next month, we're reading The Duke and I by Julia Quinn. Woo! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you may know already, the basis of the Bridgerton series on Netflix. Which is huge. Massive. Massive. Jane's um, watched it, loved it. (laughs) I have not. I started it and (laughs) I decided to put it aside Mm. until I read this, which is book one in the Bridgerton series. I have a little blurb for it. You want to hear? I'd love to. By all accounts, Simon Bassett is on the verge of proposing to his best friend's sister, the lovely and almost on the shelf, Daphne Bridgerton. But the two of them know the truth. It's all an elaborate plan to keep Simon free from marriage-minded society mothers. And as for Daphne, surely she will attract some worthy suitors now that it seems a duke has declared her desirable. But as Daphne waltzes across ballroom after ballroom with Simon, it's hard to remember that their courtship is a complete sham. Maybe it's his devilish smile. Certainly it's the way his eyes seem to burn every time he looks at her. But somehow Daphne is falling for the dashing duke, for real. And now she must do the impossible and convince the handsome rogue that their clever little scheme deserves a slight alteration and that nothing makes quite as much sense as falling in love. Ooh, handsome rogue. <laughs> <laughs> have you read, do you read romance, Jane? Yes. Right. I have in the past. Mm. I haven't for a while mm. of probably a long while but i have no qualms about reading romance if you're into it definitely yeah yep why not and yep. i agree with that article there is a disdain for romance and i think you'll find lots of of um, authors of romance novels talking about her kind of sidelined in the literary or the um, publishing arena i guess they're sort of shuffled into a corner but the reality is romance novels and romance fiction is hugely popular it counts for more than half of the publishing industry so like we said earlier a complete departure from the last two months which is welcomed by me and probably (laughs) lots of you so (laughs) i don't think there'll be tears in this next month book i should hope not it's yeah happy ever after joyful joyful romance tears maybe that's yeah maybe (laughs) 
actually in this article it actually says by definition romance is intended to offer readers an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending yes so happily ever after is where we're going right well we, we know it we can expect it and we will we it can will relax be delivered. and enjoy <laughs> no children will no die no <laughs> none and this is a trending titles mm-hmm. book as well so uh, if you'd like go down to the cultural center and have a look to see if maybe some of the trending titles copies are in. Yes. You can just grab it. Loads and, and loads of copies. And the book is also available on Libby, so you can and get it online as well. Excellent. Happy reading. Happy reading. See you next month. Bye. Bye. diary have you ever seen it in real life (laughs) as opposed to just telling me about it yeah yeah i think you have shown it to me it's cute i know i ordered it specially because it's actually a 15 month diary but i like it so much like the pictures and stuff oh how cute cute. it is i know i just love it look at it is is it australian no so that's also annoying so all the, you need a one with all, all the Australian birds. Well, all the public holidays are wrong, and uh. then it says it's a full moon, but it's not a full moon. Well, why are you so excited about it? Because then? it's so pretty. <laughs> Look at it. <laughs> it is very pretty. <laughs> now, can I tell you something I'm excited about? Yeah. Look at my earrings. Do you see what they what say? Does that say? The plot. Does it say plot twist? Yeah. Do they both say that? They don't say plot twist. Oh, I mean, how perfect. Like <laughs> I saw them, I was like... Uber nerd earrings. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I have to have them. <laughs> They're very cute.